and sisters and their friends and welcome again as we open up the word of God look at the scriptures today no gimmicks here we're not going to give you any stories or anything but just the word of God and not only that we're going to give you the word of God in context uh, the psalmist says so beautifully he says open up my eyes Lord and that's the eyes of the heart so that I may see the wondrous things of your law the law here is the Word of God. The more you and I study the Word of God, the more we find God's mind, the more we learn about Him, and the more hope and faith He gives us for the future. And do we need hope in the times that we are living in? This is really, really extraordinary times that we're living in, and we need Him now more than ever. So like I say, we open up the Word of God. We don't try to read anything into the Word of God, but we let the Word of God feed our souls and give us enough faith to take it day by day. So I want to talk to you today about a very controversial topic in the church today, and that is about the rapture. I want to talk to you about the rapture, and it, it might take me a couple of Sundays. Maybe it could take me up to three Sundays, but I'm not going to rush this. I'm generally just going to discuss two portions of scripture with you today. And I want to look at this controversial topic, not to be controversial, but to answer the question out there about the rapture. Now, for a lot of you uh, who don't know what it is and you ask the question, what is the rapture? Well, the rapture is what the Bible talks about, the snatching away. Or the Greek word for it is harpazo. That also translates in Latin, rapato, where we find our word rapture from. And this means it is the, the church that will be taken back to heaven for seven years, while the great tribulation of God is going to be poured out upon the face of the earth. And this is what it is. It is the snatching away, called the rapture. And again, if you open up, uh, you know, Google and you Google it and if you go to YouTube and you, if you go to all the platforms, there is a plethora. There is so many people preaching about the rapture. Some is for it, some is against it. But there's also people who talk about um, the timing of the rapture. And, and generally there is a massive... Uh, um, disagreement around the timing of the rapture you see some say that uh, the rapture will happen before the tribulation of god starts upon the face of the earth the seven years and we will get to that in the coming weeks and this is called the pre-trip rapture pre-tribulation 
and then there are some that say that the tribulation will happen and then halfway through the tribulation God will then snatch away the church out of the world and that is called the mid-tribulation, the mid-tribus. And then there are those who say that no, it's not going to happen and the church will have to go through the tribulation, all the hardship that's going to come upon the face of the earth. <clears throat> and then at the end of it, um, Christ will come with his second coming. And that is also called a post trip. Now we will answer that question, not today, but we will address that in the coming weeks. Uh, maybe next week I will be able to get to that question there. But I want to establish for us today the case for the rapture. You know, I want to go to the scriptures today and then look at two portions of scripture and make it clear. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will bless my preaching today and open it up for you so that you may understand and take a lot of comfort and hope out of the word of God today. So. Next week, maybe like I say, I will come back to the timing around the rapture. But today I want to talk about the case. And you know, I want to set the case for the coming of the Lord to receive or to snatch away his church. And a good place to start is with a promise. So I want to start today with a promise that Jesus Christ himself gave his disciples. And not only his disciples, but us of his imminent returning to come and receive the church unto himself. Now, if you do have a Bible, and I highly recommend that you follow in your own Bible, although on the video you do see the scriptures coming up on your screen, and if you listen online, more than welcome to connect to our, our, our website, which is kingswaycf.com. If you go there, you will find the video, and you can follow on the video reading the scripture. But if you do have your own Bible, my friend, it is critical to open it up, in John chapter 14. Follow in your own Bible, take a pen, write in there things that you learn, and may the Lord bless you today with His Word. So, I'm late. So, in John chapter 14, we find a very interesting passage. And this Let not your heart be troubled. That is so applicable to our days. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. You see, Jesus is not a liar. He is the foundation of truth. He says, in my Father's house is many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you this. I go. And prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whether I go uh, or wherever I go, you know, and the way you know. The Lord bless the public reading of his word. And my prayer is, Lord, with your Holy Spirit, open up each one of your hearts to receive your word today. What is God going to speak to you specifically today? I believe he's got a blessing for you through these words.
Now, first of all, when we look at the scripture, we need to understand what the circumstances were surrounding this promise that Jesus made to his disciples. They were certainly in a difficult circumstance. We saw that before these words, they were sitting in the upper room. And you remember Jesus took on the form of a servant, put on the clothing of a servant and started washing their feet. They sat around that table and they started partaking in the, the, the meal offering. And he broke the bread and he says, take eat. This is my body broken for you. And then after supper, he took the cup and he says, this is the new covenant for you, replacing the old covenant. But also what happened during that time is that he also said to them, there is one in and amongst us that is going to betray me. He's going to hand me over to be killed. Not in so many words, but he said it so. And he said, the one who will dip his hand with me into the same part, it is him. And we know that it was Judas Iscariot. It is the one who held the purse, the money carrier. So all of these circumstances happened around these disciples and never forget that these were men who left their, their work, their jobs, their businesses to follow Jesus, the new way. And he started preparing them as they came back into Jerusalem. By now they saw all these people throwing down branches and their clothing and said to Sana to the King of Kings, the one who came in the name of the Lord. They saw all of that. They saw how the Pharisees is against him. But still their hope was in this one man, the God man, the Son of Man, the Son of God. So they trusted so much in him. They placed all of their faith in this one whom John says himself. They heard him. They could see him. They could touch him. This is the one he says there in the letters of John that they bring witness into the world, which still gets me excited to this day. But then he started preparing them and he started talking a language and words which they didn't want to hear. He started telling them that he's going to go away. He started telling them that he was going to die. And that night happened. Judas Iscariot, one of the inner circle, broke the trust. He stormed out of the room into the night, into the darkness of night. Preparing his heart as Satan filled his heart to come up against the Messiah. And then he, he turned to Peter and he says to this bastion of loyalty, this, this rock of loyalty, Peter. He said to him, Peter. You're going to deny me in front of the other disciples. And he goes, what is with you, with you Lord? What is, what is going on? This man that we've put all of our trust in, the circumstances are changing. And he feels as if the walls are coming in on, amongst the disciples. Are you feeling like that sometimes? Especially now. Do you feel sometimes that this faith that you've placed in a God that you cannot see 
that he's not there? That he said to you that he's not going to be around? That's literally what he told them. He said to them, him physically is not going to be around any longer. No longer to run up to him straight where he sits under a tree. No longer hearing his words physically. And then he turns to Peter, this bastion, like I say, of loyalty. And he says, you're going to deny me. Is that the same how you feel sometimes? You feel the fear of denying Christ. Even in these times where through the world and where the dark clouds of circumstances all over the world is coming in and amongst you. Where there is all of this new world that they're laying out. Passports, can't do this, can't do that. Maybe, you know, fear of, of getting a virus, fear of dying, fear of taking this, fear. All of these circumstances, we are in the same situation. But you see, Jesus comes to them and he says to them, Let not your heart be troubled. Let it. You see, with him, he knew the what is coming upon him in the next few days. But for these men, you know, it's the unseen. It is do not know what's going to happen tomorrow. It's not know what's going to happen the day after, the week after, or next month, next year. Not knowing these things. And that comes in and causes anxiety. You know what I'm talking about. It causes perplexity within your mind and the brain keeps on running around with a perplexed situation. It causes fear, uncertainty. This is what a troubled heart causes. And all of these things then leads into sorrow. And I've said it before and I preached a sermon on this where fear destroys faith. And it puts you into a position of hopelessness. And in fact, what it does, dear friend, it makes your heart like a troubled sea. I don't know if you've been on a troubled sea. I've never been on a troubled sea physically, but I've been on a cruise ship deep in the ocean. And there's this one day where there was just a little bit more wind than normally and the swells of water was big and, the, and this massive ship went through this and we could feel how the ship goes up and down and hear the wind blowing on the deck. I wouldn't want to be in that swells, in that wind with a small yacht. These men knew they were on a small boat in the middle of that sea when the waves filled their boat and Jesus calmed the storm. You see, this is what anxiety do. This is what troubled heart do. It gives you this, it's like a troubled sea, but it is here where you need the master's voice to calm things down. I just want to talk to you out today. I don't want to preach to you. I don't want to teach to you today. So if this message, you know, I'm talking about the rapture, but I pray to the Lord that he speaks to you in many ways. Don't only sit there to learn more about the rapture, but if the Holy Spirit speaks to you right now, friend, if you've got an anxious heart, listen to me, listen to me, cast your burdens unto Jesus today. Do not become this troubled heart. 
don't rest anywhere. You grab onto alms everywhere around you, but it gives no rest. No rest. You see, people fall generally into three groups. Three groups or three categories. You see, you get some people who live with false hope. False hope. They rely on a political party or they rely on a person. And we've seen so much of it the last four years in America. Rely on a person and, and they think that this political party of theirs is going to bring justice and progress in their little worlds. You know, think about the vaccine. You know, there's so many people put so much effort and hoping this vaccine is going to bring us back to a life we, 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 we were before. A careless life, a freed life. And so... So much false hope goes into these things and they are at peace when their finances and their health are good and even, even those things that those things can be taken away from them very quickly. It's like mist in front of the sun. People living on false hope. Oh, they've got hope, they'll tell you. But when trouble, when trouble comes, the hope disappears. That's the first group. Then you get people with no hope. They've got no hope anymore. You see this group, and I see them grow really fast in our day. I see people really, grow, it's growing fast, the, the people with no hope. They place their faith in something that do not last. Whilst the other people put it in, in, in things which, which disappear. These, these things we know they do not last. And they put their faith in there. And these people have just given up. They just throw in the towel. They just walked away. No hope. No hope at all. And then they grasp onto these things like alcohol and drugs and, and, and whatever things that gives them a, a quick fix comfort. But there's no substance. So you get the false hopers and the no hopers, but then you get the ones who hope in Jesus, whose faith is built on a rock. And this is a sure hope on, on Jesus Christ. Now, the thing is the previous two groups will say to you, at least we can see something. At least I can see my finances. At least I can see my properties. At least I can see my political party. Uh, at least I can see my bottle of alcohol. At least I can see my drugs. But where is your God? Where, where can you see him? You see, they've got no hope and they've got false hope. But we trust in God. We've got faith, which is a substance of the unseen things. We walk by faith and not by sight. This is something which, which passes the imagination of every single brain. And it brings into your and my heart. It brings a peace that surpasses all understanding. This is a sure hope. The hope in Jesus Christ. It's not a wish. It is a hope. It is a confidence that is based on the character of God. Now, let me ask you right now. Do you know the character of God, my friend? How long have you studied God? How do you know that he's a he's an omnipotent God, all powerful God, omniscient God? He knows everything. Omnipresent God. That's the characters of God. Not characters, it's his character. And this hope that I've got, he's a sovereign God. This hope that I've got, 
is based in a confidence on that character of God. So he comes to these, to these men and he says, let not your heart be troubled. I want to come to you today. And even if this is the only thing you remember of this sermon today is measure your heart up against the calmness of Christ that he can give and ask yourself if you've got a troubled heart. And if you do, my friend, come right now to the cross and, and ask him to give you that peace. So we see that the remedy for a troubled heart is faith. He says it right there in this promise. Look at verse 1 again. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Right after the word troubled comes belief. Right after the word which brings anxiety and fear comes belief. If you want to have victory over your troubled heart, believe, have faith. Now, it's interesting how he put this. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. What does he mean? Well, he's already got an eye on the future. These men were with him and they believe in God, although they see him uh, as Christ, as the Messiah, but they still God, the father. And but they couldn't see him. They didn't see God, the father, yet they believe in him. Now he's preparing them. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. Now you see me, but when I'm gone and you can't see me anymore, believe in me as you believe in God. So powerful and so true. This is where we need to understand how we need to believe in him. You see, Peter said it so correctly when he wrote himself about this in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 7 that's the same teaching that he gives he says the trial of your faith you see here we go again the trial of your faith we are going through a trial of faith right now but let not your heart be troubled Jesus said and Peter said it now he says the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perish your faith is way more precious than gold though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Oh, I love it. Remember, Jesus says, though you believe in God, believe also in me. You don't see God, but believe in me when you don't see me anymore. Peter, after he's already gone, he writes this down. He says now to them, he says, your faith your faith is much more precious than gold, though it's tried by fire and might be found unto praise, honor, and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ when he comes again. Whom having not seen, you love. In whom though now we see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with a joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So this is what he said to them when he says, you believe in God, believe also in me. But now I want to come to the second part of his promise. He now gives us a little bit of an indication what he's going to do. Okay. When he leaves, he says in my father's house are many mansions. He says, 
there are many months as if it were not so, I would have told you this. Now, the first thing when I mention the word mansion today for you and for me and for many people is what? If, if I mention mansion, first thing coming, it's a big, big, big house. It's not a small three bedroom house. It's a big, massive house with stairways going up and lights lifting it up, swimming pool, beautiful gardens, ample room there. You know, you've got room for every single thing you want. A massive, big square meter house, big fences on paving. You walk into the house. I remember I visited a house in, in New Zealand for a very rich man that gold plated as you walk up the stairs, you know, the, the stair going up the side, the rails were gold plated. The tiles were some of the best tiles you can find in the world. Now that's the first thing that comes up in your mind when you think mansion. And truly in your English Bible, it says mansion. But remember the Bible is only a translation. It's not the true word, it's a translation of Greek. So this year, when he speaks a mansion here, comes from the Greek word mone. And mono means a place where one dwells permanently. Now I've heard, I've heard Christians say it in their ignorance, I can't waste to wait to move into my mansion in heaven. It's going to be a beautiful place. Well, what Jesus meant here is in my father's house are many dwelling places for you to go and dwell. And the idea here is, is to take habitation of that place and be with the father, be with the son, be with the Holy Spirit. So don't get confused with English names and things and, you know, mansion and we think it if we think about a mansion in the in a Western mindset. So he says in my father's house are many mansions and now and now comes the promise. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also and and where I go, you know. Uh, where I go, you may know, and the way you know. Now, I want to unpack that for you because it's really interesting. Because if he says, I go to prepare a place for you, what does he mean? Does he mean he goes now into heaven and he's got so many followers on the world, so many Christians, and they're all going to come and live here in their, all their mansions, and it's massive mansions. And he's got to start the biggest building project in heaven to build these houses and to pull up the walls and put in the, the lightings and put on the roofs and build all those swimming pools. Is that what he means by preparing a place for you? Have you ever wondered what it means when he says, and go and prepare a place for you? Well, I'll make it easy for you because we go back to the word of God. When he prepared the place for us, Remember, he was still on the earth when he said this to these men. He did what Hebrews chapter 9 explains to us so beautifully. So beautifully. It says in verse 11, Hebrews 9, 11, But Christ, it's him. 
The same one who said, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. Now again, I'm, I'm jumping into the middle of the chapter here. You need to read it in context. But what I want to show you is how he prepared this place for us. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made by hands, that is, not of this creation. What is now he says, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. Remember, John the Baptist, when he was baptizing at Betabara one day, he saw Jesus coming and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. What is a lamb there for? Says it at the beginning there in verse 12. The blood of goats and calves. What happened? They took the lambs and they, they slaughtered them and they killed them and they offered them to God as a Passover, as the blood that, that God may pass over their sins. It covered their sins. But here Jesus came as the Lamb of God and with His own blood He entered into the most holy place of all. Where is that? Not on the earth. It is in the presence of God, of the Father. In the most holy of all, having obtained eternal redemption. Remember, you need to put these two things. Mansion is a dwelling place, a permanent dwelling place. But first he had to go and prepare this mansion for us, this dwelling place. How? We were not able to go into the holy place and go into the presence of God in our sinful nature. We couldn't do that with the blood of calves or of animals because the nature is still a sinful nature. He had to come and with his own blood wash you white as snow and wash and forgive your sins. And he had to take that blood into the holiest of all. The same thing they did on the earth in, in the temple on the earth where the high priest once a year would took blood into the holy of all as a, as a, a redemption, as, as a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. He did that all when he went up into heaven. Having obtained eternal redemption, not only redemption, eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an eye for sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without a spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to the serving living God? I know I get excited, but you should get excited because this is what he went and do when he prepared a place for us. It's not a building project. How much more the blood of Christ? Verse 15, and for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. He died. For the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive what? The promise of eternal inheritance. We are working with a promise here. What is that promise? Eternal inheritance of what? Of a habitation, of a sonship, of being a child of God in His presence, joint heirs with the Son. This is fascinating stuff, absolutely fascinating stuff. So in Hebrews, he gives us this. 
and he, he explains to us what he went to do to prepare this place for us. And now he completes the promise so beautifully. He says, I will come again. There is the promise. That's what I'm waiting for. That's what millions of Christians are waiting for today. Are you waiting for that? He says, I will come again. Now follow the flow here. He says, I go. He's going on his own. And, and he said this before the cross, remember? And he he went to the cross on his own terms. He didn't, they didn't come and grab him. Yes, Judas Iscariot came and kissed him and they took him away the shoulders and they beat him up. But he went on his own. He's already given over to that. He said before that in John, he says, Father, the work that you've given me, I've already done it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. I go and I will come again. And we are looking at this coming. Let it be known here. This is not the second coming he's talking about here. I'll show this to you. It is, it is uh, this particular place here. This particular promise here. Is not to set up something on the earth. Listen, follow the flow. He says to receive you to myself. What a promise. And where I am, you may be. And then he, he says to them, and where I go, you know. Where I go, you know. And the way, you know. So he tells them, you know the place, the location, and you know how to get there. And I mean, you've got to give it to Tom, Thomas. In verse 7, verse 5, he says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going and how can we know the way? And look, you know, it's okay. It's okay if you sit here today and listen to me and you say, preacher, I don't know. I, I don't know the way. I don't know where he is. Well, he gives you the answer right now. He says to you, in verse 6, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have known me, you have known the Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. So he says, the way to where he is, is him. He says, I am. The way. The truth. The life. That's the way. There's no other way. No good works of yourself. No following today some of the laws still. There's a group out there who's still following. They say, oh, he came and only fulfilled the sacrificial laws, but all the other laws you still need to obey. Yes, we do, but we obey them in Christ Jesus himself. That's the way. He didn't say here, I am the way, the truth, and life. Plus... There is still certain few laws. No, no. We follow Christ. I follow him. He is the way. Now you ask me and uh, you say, how do I get onto that way, preacher? And I want to I wanna give you a way to get onto the way. Uh, just right in the middle of the sermon, I, I must tell you that without Christ, you are lost. You, you're lost for this promise is not applicable to you if you do not you do not find yourself on the way how do i get on that way well it's really easy my friend uh, and now is the time you know isaiah chapter 1 18 uh, chapter 1 verse 18 says that um verse verse 17 says come let's reason together 
uh, verse 18, beg your pardon, though your sins were like scarlet and your transgressions like wool, uh, crimson, I will wash it white as snow. Now is the time. Let's reason together. There is a way to come onto the way. First of all, you need to admit that you're a sinner. You're a sinner and it's not a sinner because you're doing you know, no more naughty things than the guy next to you. You were a sinner born. doesn't matter whether your parents were Christians, good Christians, and you go to school, you went through Sunday school, you go to church. No, no, you need to admit that you're a sinner. You admit that. And then you repent to God because it's against Him who you've sinned. They go together. If you acknowledge that you're a sinner, you repent. You come to Him. There is no salvation without repentance. 1 John chapter 1 verse 89 says, If you confess your sin, He is faithful and just. If you confess your sin, to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. First of all, you come to Him and you say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I repent. And then you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And He was buried. And that God raised Him from the dead. You believe in that. You find the scriptures in Romans. And then you call upon the name of the Lord because he says, if you call upon me, then he will draw near to you. Repent. I acknowledge your sinner. Repent. Do it now. I highly recommend that. And then he says, I will come again and receive you to myself. You remember that. So that's the promise. So um, I want to take you now to the second passage where this is adding into or which will give you a little bit more of a directive in this area. We turn open up now in your Bibles in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and we read in verse 13. I'm going to read the whole passage to you and then I will unpack it for you. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul writes now to the church in Thessalonica. He says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. You see, there is that group there, the false hopers and the no hopers. And he says to them, I'm writing to you not to be ignorant and to be like the no hopers. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Now let me first of all say, when he uses the word sleep here, it doesn't mean that people, we, when we die, we go into a sleep and wake up and we exist to think and operate. No, no. There is enough and I've preached about this before. The word sleep here is used in a way to, to understand that the body sleeps. This will sleep. And you know, I've sat amongst people who passed away. When you sit with the body, it looks as if they are sleeping. But beyond that, there's, no, there's still going on. The soul still interacts. So he says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. You see, the point I want to make here is that the return of Christ was not a new teaching to these people in Thessalonica. It wasn't a new thing. Paul, when he came around the first time, he taught them all scripture, every single thing. 
And one of those things that he taught these people was the returning of Jesus Christ. The promise that I just gave you now. He was teaching them just like I taught you maybe. Maybe he took it apart. Maybe he got very excited about it. Maybe he preached expository just like I do. I don't know. One day I'll ask him. But he was certainly teaching these people about the coming of Christ. To receive us unto himself. To go to this place, this dwelling place that he prepared for us. He taught that already. Now I want us just to follow the logic here. I'm not going to read stuff into this. We're just going to follow the logic of the scripture. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of these people who's already passed away. And then he says, but God will bring with him those who passed away. Their souls, not their bodies. Because their bodies will obviously be in the grave. Okay. Now he says, for this the word of the Lord shall know. And then he says that in verse 15, until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Aha! Here is the argument that Paul is making. You see, he says, we will not go before the ones who's dead already. The reason why he said this to them is because right after he went in there and, and taught them, the doctrine, the returning of Christ, right after he taught them what we read in John chapter 14, now the promise, there were others coming in and they started mocking them and scoffing at them. People in the church even. You see, they came to these people and said, where is the coming of Christ? Where is that Paul's teaching that he came around with? No, we know better. No, 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 it's different. You, know, you shouldn't take everything that Paul says. You should take it with a grain of salt. Why is it taking so long? And, and by the way, what about mom and dad who's lying under the tree there in the cemetery? What about granny? What about granddad? What about even if some of their children were, were passing away before them? So these people came out and they scoffed about these things after Paul taught them about the returning of Christ. And when they came to him, they said to him, Paul, these people who came in and amongst the people, there's a question from the people in the church to you now, because you taught this, made this message to them. They are asking us now, what about the people who died? So Paul sat down under the unction of the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit, and he answered their question. He said to them, I don't want you to be ignorant. The things which I taught you still stands. But here is the thing. That those who died before us will not be left behind. He answers it in verse 15. He says, the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. We will not go before them. He says, they're going to come with him and then we will go. That is the argument here that flows into now him and packing what Jesus said in that promise to us before. You say, preacher, prove it to me. Well, Peter is another example again. Peter picked up on this and he addresses the same issue, which I've just explained to you. In 2 Peter chapter 3, 3, he says, Knowing first 
that scoffers will come in the last days. Are we living in the last days? There are those in the church right now in the church who's scoffing at the idea of the rapture of the church. They are now tying hands with the world scoffing at the church. Oh, these people who believe in, in they're going to be raptured out of the world. It's happening. It's happening. Same. Why is it taking so long? It's been, it's been thousands of years since Jesus said those words and Paul said those words. It's the same. Peter says they will come in the last days walking according to their own lust and saying, listen to what they're saying back in Peter's day. Where is the promise of his coming? Where is it? Maybe you've asked that same question and I pray through God that he will break through your hardened heart today to take this on board and to listen what the Spirit of God says. They say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, it's the same argument that the church had in Thessalonica. All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. See, see, this is the same. Now I've got to preach and defend the rapture. I'm not defending the rapture here. Don't get me wrong. You either believe it or not. That's your story. I'm telling you what the Bible says. I'm making the case for it. You can believe whatever you want to believe, but I know one thing for certain, that my master, Jesus Christ, the one who I'm following, he said that he's coming again. And he will receive us unto himself. Next week, hopefully, I will come into and laying out to you the two, the coming, his second coming and the rapture. I'll lay them side to side for you to see for yourself. But there's one thing for certain, whether you believe or not in the pre, mid or post rapture, he is coming back again. You have to believe that. So, so Peter says this to them. And now, now I want you to go and see what Paul writes on here. He says in verse 16, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Hello? Jesus promised, he said, I will receive you unto myself. I go and prepare. I go and I will come again. And what will do? I will receive you unto myself. Why would Paul preach exactly the same? Paul wasn't there. Listen to me. Paul wasn't there with the other disciples in John chapter 14 when Jesus himself gave this instruction or this promise to the disciples. He wasn't there. He was persecuting the church. How would Paul know these things? When he was on the road of Damascus, what happened? Jesus appeared to him. He was struck with blindness. He, he went away. He himself said when he came, he didn't go straight to Jerusalem to see the other apostles. He didn't go to them. He went into the desert of Arabia where Jesus Christ taught him. So it's not something that Peter told him or anybody told him. He received the revelation himself from Jesus Christ himself, repeating the same promise two different places in the Bible. This now from Paul, who wasn't in the crowd that day. Hold on. Same with us. 
I'm not trying to convince you again. I repeat myself. You can believe whatever you want to believe. But this is the word of God. He says, he himself will descend from heaven. I go and prepare a place for you. And he ascended. Now he descends. Now listen to this now. With a shout. With the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. It's Paul writing to them, he answers their question. So he says with a shout. The word here is a military word. It means a command. If you were in the army like myself or in the navy, you will understand this. This is an urgent command that must be obeyed. And you will hear the command loud and clear. When we were in the army, when those instructors shouted out the commands, they shouted it out. It's perfectly and clear. You could hear sometimes from one side uh, of a valley that command being cried out to the other side. This is how it's going to be. It's a shout for action it's a shout for call he says with the, with the voice of an archangel he didn't mention an archangel's name but this tells me that it is the highest order of the angels and with the trumpet of god this is interesting because again i will come down to the second coming and to the rapture and this is the only place we read about the trumpet the trumpet of God will come. There's two reasons why he uses a trumpet in the Old Testament. One was to use it in war. Uh, when they come in, a, in amongst those uh, the enemy soldiers, they would blow on the trumpets and it will cause a stir. It, it will, uh, um, you know, that's what they used to make the people confused. But, but then also it was used to gather the nation. And here when we're going to hear that trumpet is to gather his children. He says then, verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Mansion. Is that coming up in your mind? I go to prepare a mansion for you, a dwelling place. He says it here, we shall be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Now, he says there, he says, in his promise in John 14, he says, Where I, I receive you unto myself, and where I am, you will be also. Paul writes it exactly here. He says, we shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is where we find our first encounter with the word rapture. The word here is actually caught up there. The word caught up is snatching away. It's the Greek word arpazo. It is the Latin word rapato, which translates into English rapture. So you don't find the word rapture in the Bible. If you go into an online Bible concordance and you put in the word rapture, it will come up and say there's no word rapture in the Bible. And you wouldn't believe so many people used excuse me, use that as an argument against the rapture. It's not. It is Arpazzo. And we will go deeper into that in the next coming weeks. But I want to leave you with, with the final words here of Paul. 
He says, wherefore, application word. Now that you've heard all these things, wherefore, what for, wherefore, therefore, comfort one another with these words. We need some comfort, brothers and sisters. Now, there are those who believe that we will go through the tribulation and they are putting a lot of pressure on myself to prepare the church for the tribulation. And I say to them, I don't need to prepare the church for the tribulation. How do I prepare the church for tribulation? You tell me. There are some of those who are selling buckets now, you know, Russian buckets, not Russians, Russian, you know, food, you know, candles, everything. You know, you can buy the bucket now from the ministries and this will last you for two weeks and prepare you, prepare the church for the tribulation. There are those who's doing that, foolish. If you buy one of those buckets, bless your heart. How do you prepare the church for the tribulation? I don't have to do that. Because if you're in Christ and you're built on faith, you're already prepared for everything. There is, there is some tribulation today. Persecution is happening. But there's those who say to me, prepare the church, you know, get them ready. Where's the comfort in that? Where is the comfort in me telling you that next year, maybe, maybe not, if the tribulation starts, that you're going to go through difficult times. You may drink blood, you may hide, you may be, you, you may be beaten with sticks. You may, what is the proof of God for the church to go through that? What is the comfort in that? This is not the comfort that Paul talks about here. I don't see Paul here telling us, prepare the church for the tribulation. No, no. He says, prepare the church for what? For the coming of the Lord to meet us in the air. I will give you the timeline next week and the week is after which I believe the Bible teaches that the comfort is in Christ, that he's coming back. I want you to look into the sky and look for his coming and be ready for his coming. I pray and I hope the Lord blessed your heart today. We will continue as you know me and I don't want to be over hastily and, you know, drag it out for two hours teaching and so on. Let's make it bite sizes, but let's next week talk and continue on talking about the rapture of the church. I pray and I believe that the Lord has laid a foundation for you to see where this idea of the returning of the Lord comes from and us taking us to him. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Your word, Lord, is a direction for our souls. It gives us strength. It gives us faith. It builds our knowledge, Lord, and it prepares us. I pray now, Lord, that you go with everybody who heard my voice today. And let he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of the Lord says, says the Bible. And I want to repeat those words in Jesus' name. Amen.